So, so we're doing Matt. He rushed home from work to do it. Um, okay. Hey, are we doing this on Skype? Yeah, I text. No, we're going to do it on the phone because we had to. focusing on industrial organization, monopoly power, and market structure. Sounds really boring, but he's actually really interesting. He writes for places like the New York Times, The Nation, The Atlantic. He talks to us about the rise of Trump and which narratives need to be killed, and he's willing to kill them with his own bare hands. But before we speak to Matt, we talk identity politics with Leslie Lee. And our hot take of the week is that Bernie Sanders is the wokest, most intersectional politician alive. Make sure you go on to patreon.com slash the Katie Halper Show. Again, that's patreon.com slash the Katie Halper Show. You're going to get bonus content, including an extended interview with none other than Matt Stoller. More things to look forward to are great videos, extended interviews with Leslie Lee, follow-up interview with Ben Jealous, and a very happy belated birthday shout-out to Darius Engel, a loyal supporter of the Katie Halper Show, a man with truly exquisite, exceptional taste. Happy birthday! I won't mention on November 25th. If you'd like your own personalized birthday shout out, and this time we promise we will try to do it on time and not late, then support the Katie Halper Show at the $13 level. Plus, we'll give you a Twitter follow. Hello, and welcome to the Katie Halper Show. I'm your host, Katie Halper, and as usual, I'm here with the lovely and um, succulent. Why did I call you that? Oh, yes, the delicious Gabe Pacheco right here. Right here. Very yes. funny man. Has a show, a comedy show. Funhouse Comedy in Williamsburg, Pete's Candy Store. Every, every Wednesday. Wednesday. And all of our listeners, take note. You've been you've been warned. You should be subscribed to us on Patreon. Patreon.com slash the Katie Halper Show. You get extra goodies. We posted some extra uh, nuggets from our interviews with Ben Jealous and our interview with Dea Schlossberg. And... Nisa Seneca. So make sure you're on there. We're really excited. We're going to we're going to try to take on the very simple task of uh of taking on identity politics. We're going to be talking to Leslie Lee and you may remember him. He's been on our show. He did a live show and an audio show and he is the creator of the hashtag Bernie Made Me White and he's also a writer and he's in the DC area. Leslie, welcome. Oh, thank you for having me. Nice to be with you um delicious Gabe and I guess vicious Katie Halper, delicious I, and delicious. I like that. Yeah, delicious and delicious. That sounds like a tag team from like the glorious ladies of wrestling era. Yeah. Uh, absolutely. It was actually WCW, but close enough. Oh, wow. Oh, that was the extent of my wrestling knowledge. Professional wrestling is glow. Glorious ladies of wrestling. That's all I followed. So. And you know it's coming back, right? That's right. They're going to make Netflix a TV show about it. Yeah. Also, don't you like, you're really into comic books, right? Uh, a bit, a bit. Um, I'm. I haven't been into comics since they got all woke, and now like Spider Man is a black guy. I, I'm not really into that. I. I wish they had done something with the actual superheroes that were already black instead uh, of making all the main properties. You know, a black woman, Hispanic, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Right. But I think that re- kind of relates to what we're going to be talking about today, as far as identity politics goes. I'll just set us up with that. What happened was Bernie was at Berkeley College in Boston. By the way, thank you all for sending Elizabeth Warren to the U.S. Senate. someone, a Latina woman, asked him for advice about how to run for office and be successful. Rebecca says, I want to be the second Latina senator in U.S. history. Any tips? And he said, Let me respond in a way that the question may not be happy with. <laughs> it goes without saying that as we fight to end all forms of discrimination, as we fight to bring more and more women into the political process, Latinos, African-Americans, Native Americans, all of that is enormously important, and count me in if somebody wants to see that happen. But it is not good enough for somebody to say, hey, I'm a Latina, vote for me. That is not good enough. I have to know whether that Latina is gonna stand up with the working class of this country and it's going to take yep. on big money interest. Yep. Now, one of the problems, one of the struggles that we're going to have right now, let me lay it on the table in the Democratic Party, 
is it's not good enough to me to say, okay, well, we've got X number of African Americans over here, we got Y number of Latinos, we have Z number of women, we are a diverse party, a diverse nation, not good enough. Right. We need that diversity, that goes without saying, that is accepted. Right now we've made some progress in getting women into politics, I think we got 20 women in the Senate now, we need 50 women in the Senate, we need more African Americans. Yep. But, but here is my point, and this is where there's going to be a division within the Democratic Party. It is not good enough for somebody to say, I'm a woman, vote for me. No, that's not good enough. What we need is a woman who has the guts to stand up to Wall Street, to the insurance companies, to the drug companies, to the fossil struggles that you're going to be seeing in the Democratic Party is whether we go beyond identity politics. You know, y'all, I think it's a step forward in America if you have an African-American head of CEO of some major corporation. But you know what? If that guy is going to be shipping jobs out of this country and exploiting his workers, doesn't mean a whole hell of a lot whether he's black or white or Latino. All right, and I know, you know, some people may not agree with me, but that is the fight that we're going to have right now within the Democratic Party. The working class of this country is being decimated. That's why Donald Trump won. And what we need now are candidates who stand with those working people, who understand that real median family income has gone down, that young people in many parts of this country have a very limited future that life expectancy for many workers is going down. People can't afford health care, can't afford their medicine, can't afford to send their kids to college. We need candidates black and white and Latino and gay and male. We need all of that. But we need all of those candidates and public officials to have the guts to stand up to the oligarchy. That is the fight of today. Wow, Katie, I've never heard something more racist in my life. Yeah. Like, I'm so offended by that spiel. I'm joking, of course, but that was basically the reaction a lot of our favorite um, liberal pundits had. And I want to say that I don't take their objections seriously. I think they are being deliberately dishonest mm. when they respond to that way. I think a lot of people take them in good faith. I don't. I think the Marcotte the Jill Filopovich's, the even the Joan Walsh's. I like Joan Walsh, but she was incredibly dishonest about this. Josh Marshall's Talking Points Memo, they all deliberately took Bernie's word, basically twisted them to say that we don't care about identity politics anymore or we need to do away with identity politics. Right. He doesn't say that. He doesn't hit to that at, that at all. He says the exact opposite. Totally. In fact, he, he's quite clear about that uh, earlier comment they had. He basically said, you know, first we have to end sexism and racism, and there can be no compromise on that. He was very clear about that issue. It's really important, I think, that we we look at the at the, at the syntax of the sentence. He said, "Of course they're important. Of course they're necessary, but they're not enough." He says we have to go beyond, which literally means, right? If we break it down into the philosophy, it means that identity politics are necessary but insufficient, right? Like. Those are yeah, good. Absolutely. We leave them, but they're not enough. And in theory, people should get this and agree with this. Aren't you saying that Clarence Thomas being um, uh, a, a Supreme Court justice isn't enough? Being black aren't, isn't enough, exactly. Aren't you saying that Condoleezza Rice yes. being uh, Secretary of State isn't enough? Yes. Aren't you saying that Colin Powell being Secretary of State isn't enough? Right. I, what was Condoleezza Rice, by the way? Uh, uh, she was Secretary of State. Nice. Right? Liberals understand this when it's a Republican when it's yes. uh, Michelle Bachman running for president, they don't go out and support her because she's a woman. You know, They understand that she is not fighting for people. She's fighting for corporations. And she doesn't just not deserve our support. She deserves our derision right. for that. Opposition, so you, whatever, you, yeah. The, the same rules have to apply to Democrats. Right. I mean, I think that often when I'm talking about this stuff and people don't get it, I bring up Margaret Thatcher and then people are saying like, oh, my God, how can you compare Margaret Thatcher to Hillary Clinton? Sure. They're, they're very different. 
but it's still, it, I think it drives home the concept of why gender or identity does not supersede political conviction. What happened was what TPM did, remember, he says that they are necessary, that they're good. Of course, we have to have them, but we have to go beyond them, right? So t uh, at TPM, the, the headline they used was Sanders urges supporters ditch identity politics and embrace the working class. And it says in a speech Sunday, Senator Bernie Sanders urged attendees to move away from, quote unquote, identity politics and towards policies aimed at helping the working class. Now, what's interesting, of course, is that several other places picked up this headline, even though, again, ditch has a very different connotation, right? Ditch means you're throwing yeah. away and you're abandoning it. He was not saying abandoning it. He's saying you use it, you keep it, it's a good thing, and you have to go further. So not surprisingly, of course, Matt Iglesias at Vox writes, Democrats neither can nor should ditch identity politics. Then we have Bustle. What they did is literally just copied and pasted TPM's headline into their opening. So Bustle literally says, Speaking at an event, Senator Sanders urged supporters to ditch identity politics and embrace working-class politics. That's literally what the headline of TPM is. So they, they plagiarize TPM. Um, but again, if you click on the link, it sends you, if, let's say you're reading Bustle, you click on the link, it sends you to TPM, and you see TPM says the same thing. So clearly it's true, right? It's not just one source getting it wrong. Of course, what happened was a couple days later, you had Michelle Goldberg on um, All In, All In with Chris Hayes. And she literally said that, that Sanders is, wants to ditch identity politics. Chris Hayes said, well, that's not exactly what he said, but you could barely hear him saying that. Nina Turner, she said, that's not what he said, but you could barely hear it. So it's just an example of how it goes from one place to another. Yeah, talk about fake news. Yeah. I, I guess it's not just the Russians. And the worst part about these, these, these sorts of smears is that they start from all these disingenuous people, but then people who are, you know, actually genuine read them and believe them because who's going to click five links down to find a link to the tweet of the person who posts the whole transcript? Almost nobody, right. you know? Uh, yeah. All they're all they're going to see is that headline about Bernie Sanders wants to ditch identity politics and the damage is done. And right. That's it. And, you know, we saw this. You remember when Yamiche Alcindor, New York Times reporter, asked Bernie Sanders if it was sexist for him to not drop out? Yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. That was June 6th. What do you say about Bernie Sanders? Is that a serious question? Yes, it is a serious that question. any woman who is running for president, anyone who opposes your your question implies that any woman who is running for president is by definition the best candidate. So any woman who runs but you right, also have to, to say that it is sexist that any so if Hillary Clinton runs for president, is your point that it is sexist for any man to oppose her? No, my point is that if she has more delegacy, well, that's another point. We see what happens with people picking up narratives and headlines. And what happens is when Yamichi Alcindor asked Bernie Sanders about whether it was sexist, she tweeted this. Some women think Bernie Sanders will be standing in way of history tomorrow if HRC wins and he doesn't concede. He got testy when I asked. Oh, well. Now, that's a New York Times reporter, and that's clearly a very personal, subjective thing, right? So what happens? She tweets that out. TPM's headline, Sanders gets testy after a reporter asks if he's sexist for opposing Clinton. They don't put testy in quotes. They just literally copy and paste the word used in this tweet as if it's an objective secondary source and not the, a woman who was describing what she felt like happened to her. Talk to her about that. Really? Uh, she didn't. Re yeah, I tweeted her about it. She's actually very, you know, approachable. I, but I talked to I tweeted her about it, about how angry it was. And I actually said that she made me embarrassed for all black journalists, which may have been a bit harsh. Yeah. But, you know, we got we got to call our own sometimes mm. like that. And, you know, she didn't really have a good answer. She she basically went back to that language of, well, people are saying this. So that's why I asked it. And like, that's not good enough. That's, she did the right thing. Are, you don't understand. She did the right thing, man. It's so important. Sex sells. Sexism sells. You want to get ladies to read articles. We need to get everybody's blood temperature up uh, and rising. All the identity politics is where it's at, man. I feel like Katie, you and I ha should be doing more, it's more true. stuff here uh, around that. And uh, the working class. When people talk about that, all I hear mm. is all I hear is white people. Yeah, I don't hear because there are no gay people in the working class. That's true. There are no Asians in the working class. There's never been a Native American in the working class. Not once. Um, black people, not part of the working class. It's a glass ceiling for these people. Yeah. They don't get I get into. it. I'm all, I'm, yeah, I'm all in. 
Did you know that Lean you're in. racist if you imply that even a single black person has been poor? Oh, because I know. Because that's happened a few times this it's, election cycle. Right. I mean, pick a narrative. Either o- Obama's been in office. All the memes show yeah, exactly. me that black people are prosperous beyond our, our wildest dreams. Right. And ours, I mean, the United States' wildest dreams. I, I hate that liberalism that like, thinks it's woke to sugarcoat stuff. Like, what do you want us to address and acknowledge institutionalized racism or pretend that it doesn't exist? I mean, I get it that you don't want, like, to, a white person to ask you about, like, oh, so tell me about the slaves in your family or whatever. Although I've used that. It's a great it's great on dates. Yeah. Real good icebreaker, <laughs> let me tell you. Especially when they're um, Scandinavian. First thing you do is you show them your Ancestry.com, yeah. like, results. And then you go through each, each little part of uh, your drop of your blood right. and try to have a narrative for it. Yeah, but speaking of that, like, I'm going to share a black secret with y'all and on the radio. Like, most white people don't know this. Okay. Um, we have this concept called bougie, right? Mm-hmm. And we say these bougie words for black people, right? Mm-hmm. And I feel like every time there's a pushback when people talk about the poverty black people face, it's mostly people that other black people will call bougie, right? Mm-hmm. People who aren't, who are, you know, privileged, basically. They're black, they still suffer from racism, all all that good stuff. We're not denying that. But they're people of privilege or people who have achieved privilege and now pretend, want to pre- present this image of themselves that is separate from the underprivileged black folk. Right. And it's more important to them that they present this image of themselves than it is that poor black folk actually get addressed and talked about and have their needs met. And it's, it's a really – and the problem with it is is so many of these people are in the media. I think it's almost exclusively these people who you're going to see on CNN or on MSNBC or even if you get down to, like, Slate. You're not reading from poor black people. You're not hearing from poor black people. Poor black people are silent in this country. You know, there's only – because, you know, we don't have time to start podcasts necessarily. We don't have money or that access to the circles in Washington or New York or Los Angeles that gets you a writing job at this place or that place. So poor people, uh, white people too, are just basically invisible and are erased from this conversation. But what liberals can do, they can make themselves feel better by promoting you know, certain black voices who come from that more privileged class or women who are more privileged than maybe the average uh, woman is, you know? And it's this representational uh, type of identity politics. But it, but that it doesn't speak for the people down at the bottom. Right. right. So basically what, what we're getting at here is it doesn't matter what color or gender the boss is. They're still a boss, mm. and bosses are uh, terrible because they're oppressing their employees in yeah. certain systems, like right. uh, present-day post-industrial capitalism in the United States. But we may not be able to, I mean, just so people don't throw, uh, write, write us off as, as really utopian, even if we keep the boss system, right, we still want to have more equitable stuff, right, and unionization or whatever. So um, I think that, like, yeah, the neoliberal is a neoliberal. It doesn't matter what color the neoliberal is, right? Um, yeah, and that's, all, and that's all Bernie said. All Bernie was saying was, we don't need any more sellouts in the Democratic Party. Right. Because right. the only people who like sellouts are other sellouts. And people don't like sellouts. They know they're sellouts. That's right. why they didn't vote for Hillary. They well, know she's a sellout. They're not going to vote for Cory Booker. They know he's a sellout, and he's not going to fight for them. They knew Hillary Clinton wasn't going to fight for them. It doesn't matter what color, what creed, what race, what gender, what identity that person has. If you're putting them up there and they're not fighting for people – they will not vote for him. And that's why Trump won, because in spite of all the other things he said, he said he would fight for people. He said this over and over again. That's how he was able to win votes from people who voted for Barack Obama two times. Right. So Barack Obama said the same thing. He would fight for people, and right. even, even if he necessarily didn't live up to that, at least he said it. Hillary Clinton never said it. She said, you know, I – Everything's fine. America's already great. Right. You should vote for me because this other guy is dangerous and doesn't know what he's doing. I know what I'm doing. Right. Like, that's a good 
And she just basically dropped her resume off and said, you know, I'll see you on Monday. <laughs> that's, right. that's how she thought she was going to get this uh, a job. She thought that's a job, but being become the president is not a job. You don't. It's not something you just earn through seniority. You have to inspire people. You have to tell people you will fight for them. Otherwise, they're not going to get out of bed and vote for you. Right. Yeah. yeah. How did she not know that it was a popularity contest being married to Bill Clinton? How I have no idea how she thought she was going to get by <laughs> on just a resume. So, um, and another interesting thing is that uh, Michael Arsenault, and it said Bernie Sanders still says class is more important than race. He is still wrong. Where does he say class is more important than race? Where does he say uh, he that? He says it with his, with his skin, the fact that yeah. he's a socialist. Yeah, the fact that right. he's a male. Like, it, with his penis, his point. white penis. Yeah. Pink, 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 pink <laughs> colored. Oh, God. I, I was thinking about. ivory, like elephant tusk. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. <laughs> Awful. So, so it has to be pointed out, like, the accusations, you know, centrists and liberals always make to, to the left is that we may want to make it about class instead of race and, and sexism and just about class, but it's the exact opposite. It's, it, what happens is whenever we talk about class, they immediately try to muddy the water by saying we aren't talking about race or we don't care about race or calling, as some did, Bernie Sanders, a white supremacist oh my gosh, and a yeah. sexist. Yeah. Yes, people actually said those words about him for that speech to be pointed out, like none of these people were talking about complaining about, maybe not everyone who's listening up to the radio um, knows who, you know, a uh, Amanda Marcotte is, but right. none of these people are leftists, right? Right. They're not to the left of Bernie Sanders. So when they're all in unison attacking him for these minor things, they're not doing it because they want to push him to the left. They're doing not. it because they don't want the Democrats to be pushed to the left. Right. And They're also, doing it because they want things to stay towards the center and towards the right. Right. Also, I mean, the thing is that nobody says is that Bernie Sanders is actually way more intersectional than Hillary Clinton. I mean, Bernie Sanders sees the way that these things relate to each other. Hillary just tokenizes with her abuela thing and just to tokenizes with – like. Compare what Bernie Sanders was saying, right, which was explicitly identity politics are important. We need more diversity. We're, we're, we have been moving towards diversity. We need more of that, but it's not enough. Compare that to what Hillary Clinton said at a speech in March where she said, If we broke up the big banks tomorrow, and I will if they deserve it, if they pose any systemic risk, I will. Would that end racism? No. Would that end sexism? No. Would that end discrimination against the LGBT community? No. Would that make people feel more welcoming to immigrants overnight? No. She does two things here. One is she explicitly pits them against each other as if the fight against racism and the fight against um, banks is are mutually exclusive. But she also, look at, Sanders at least says, yeah, there's sexism, there's racism, and we need to have more diversity, and, and that's, that's not a question. But we also need to make sure that we have policies that fight for working people. Hillary doesn't even say that. She's like, if they pose a systemic risk. So for her, she doesn't even yes. admit the classism is there. All this hubbub really is, it's about distracting people from moving to the left. They don't want people to talk about class at all. They don't want people to talk about class and race. They want people to only – to not talk about class at all and to just talk about race, but only in these very facile ways like, say, having a black Spider-Man and pretending like that is important even though Marvel is you know, a massive corporation owned by Disney and, I'm sh and them having a black Spider-Man in a comic book really doesn't help a whole lot of black people, especially when Marvel had no black writers whatsoever – at right. the time they did it. And, you know, when you look at these very representational ideas of identity, which I think we all get trapped in, we, we want to look at, like, the Oscars. We want the Oscars to be representational. But it's all, it's, we want black movies to be nominated, but what does that really do? Does that, is that really helping? How many black people is that helping work? How many di black directors are we, are we going to put to work with that? as opposed to if we focus our energy in reforms that would help the working class, how many millions of people we could help with that. If we put the same amount of energy we put towards these kind of superficial 
um, ideas of representation and put it towards, you know, real material economic class-based ideas of um, equality, we could accomplish probably a lot more than just, you know, black superhero movies. Right. No, no, no. I love the black superhero movies. Also, my favorite <laughs> is when uh, a politician tells me that we need to have a national dialogue around race. Oh my God. Because that, I love that, because then they're really putting the onus and responsibility on me, the television viewer, and I feel like I just got to go out in the streets and find someone of a, of a different hue uh, and just be like, hey, man, it's time for us to have this national dialogue because HRC told me to do it. Yeah, well, what about... um. When Karen Finney, Karen Finney is a HRC senior strategist, and yeah. during one of the many sessions in which we hear Clinton people explaining how they had nothing to do with the loss whatsoever, it's Bernie Bro's fault, it's Jill Stein's fault, she actually says, you know, there's a lot of misogyny and sexism, and I think it shows that we really need to have a national conversation about this, about the opposition <laughs> to having a first female president. It's like, wait, that was the conversation the entire election. <laughs> Did you miss that? Like... Wasn't gender, and I, I hate it. I sound like a reactionary man. Like, I always think we have to talk about this stuff. But this person happened to talk about it a lot and not uh But when the people, the, the people in power or the people who are politically appointed to, uh, to sort of lead and steer the nation tell us that it's our job to have a, the, to, in, in the most uh, vapid and vacuous way, um, that's, yeah, it's absurd. It's absurd. I mean, to me, everything that Bernie Sanders said was totally proven this week. Look at Donald Trump. Donald Trump named Nikki Haley to something important. She's Indian and awful. And look at this. Obama is so woke, right? He knows all the, the right words to say. He knows the nomenclature. He hasn't done anything about Standing Rock. That is an emergency situation. A woman, I mean, people are being tortured there and um, hooded. And a woman had her arm blown off. And her father said the other day, I saw a video of him, and he's saying the various people he was responsible. I think I hold the governor of North Dakota, uh, the police, the National Guard. I think that they knew what was coming. And he says, and even Obama, who I love. Uh, even President Obama, who I love, said three weeks, two, three weeks ago, well, we're going to wait and see. There's nothing more to wait and see. These people need uh, help. Yeah, they need really. to defuse the situation before hey. people die. And people will die if the situation isn't stopped. That's pretty clear. I mean, so, and you have Obama yeah, making all these statements about Native Americans and not showing up. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, we, we, this has been proven before Bernie Sanders got in the race. Black Lives Matter started, didn't start under George W. Bush. It started under President Obama. There mm -hmm. was a black face in the White House, the first black face that's in the White House, and still this mass movement of people fighting for their rights, had, of black people fighting for the rights of black people had to start under him. So having, you know, our black politicians and black CEOs is not enough and has never been enough. And the thing is, black people know this. We And we, how do we know they know it? Because they didn't come out and vote for Hillary Clinton because they knew that she would not fight for them. So, and yeah. You, yeah, that, and that's all, and that was the context that was also missing, missing from what Bernie was saying. Bernie wasn't being really... Uh, proscriptive he was being descriptive he was right. talking about what had already happened why the democrats lost is because they brought up they brought this uh, woman a politician and they talked about the talk about identity politics and intersectionality but they had no platform whatsoever that was directed at actually helping women helping black people helping Hispanic people, helping poor people, and helping working class people. And that's what we saw in the election, and that's why Bernie Sanders made those comments, because he doesn't want Democrats to keep making these same mistakes. Right. I mean, he was not as critical, because what he didn't say is the way that they're exploited and weaponized, right? Because it's not just that it's not enough. It's that they can be really sordid and perverse in their use, because they can actually— uh, be used to to give people cover to push things that a white person or a man couldn't do. Thomas Frank talks about in his book Listen Liberal. He has a chapter called It Takes a Liberal. Just similar concept. He's he's basically saying uh, Bill Clinton could pass NAFTA in a way that a Republican couldn't, right? So these people play. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah and that's the whole thing. That's and and the Clintons absolutely represent this in the worst, you know, aspect. Bill Clinton's entire presidency 
was built on this very on structural racism while having this cultural you know cache of black coolness right mm -hmm. like he he was called the first black president but he was By Tony putting me, mental, mentally disabled black men to death right. uh in order to prove his tough on crime bona fides the crime bill the welfare bill this black people you know i the clintons were very popular with black people but that had an expiration date mm. apparently obviously as we saw in this election and if hillary clinton had made any effort, you know, to fight for black people, she might have won this, but she actually didn't. She only fought against Bernie Sanders and tried to take away his support uh, that any black pe black people who might support him. He they tried to they attacked him for his civil rights work, which is bizarre. They they said that his uh, supporters were only white dubros, which is, of course was never true and. But she never presented a positive case for what she was going to do for black people, and therefore black people did not show up in the, in masses that they did for Obama, and she lost. Right. Um, yeah, Ben Jealous, who we had on the on literally election day, said to us um, one of the things he said. He he wrote an article the next day about the resistance starts now and what to do with that. And one of the things he said is that in Florida where she lost by 120,000 voters, there are 600,000 unregistered black voters. And those people would have overwhelmingly voted for her. And, you know, the fact that they spent money on ads instead of registering those voters is a real Shonda. I don't believe he used that word, but that's what we think. Um, <laughs> we have to have you on again. And, and where can people find you on Twitter? Uh, you can find me at Leslie Lee III on Twitter. Okay, great. Awesome. All right, thank you so Thanks. thank you so much for having me. It's yeah. great talking to you guys. Bye, Leslie. Bye. Matt Stoller is a budget analyst on the Senate Budget Committee and an amateur historian. And I bring up the amateur historian part because I think that we can't not look at the history, both like recent as in, you know, what happened on, on election day, but also what led up to it. Like we can't not look at those things if we want to understand how Trump came to power and what forces have propped him up. And I think there's this really scary narrative that is so intellectually lazy, which is just like, oh no, they're just a bunch of racists and um, they're too racist and too sexist. And that's why they didn't vote for Hillary Clinton. And so we just need to, and that in itself is, is like, I think a mis way oversimplifying. But then that combined with the idea that we should not cater to these people because we don't cater to racists the only option with that that you're left with is either armed uprising, which I don't think the people like Jamel Bowie writing about this in Slate are actually putting forward as an option or want to participate in, or we just wait for the demographics and these people to die out. And but by then we'll have another Trump. I'm a policy person, so I tend to think in terms of ideas and policy rather than elections. Um, generally speaking, you know, the way I, I, I started writing about the rise of more authoritarian politics and populist politics in, um, in 2012, when I wrote a, a, a piece for the Fordham Law Review about the collapse of the housing finance system and what that meant. And what we're dealing with and what we have to understand about the, uh, the Obama presidency, and I guess now pretty soon to be the Trump presidency, is a collapse of systems that were set up in the 30s and 40s that were built out of the, uh, the collapse of the Great Depression and that were cemented in place to uh, get rid of, of political instability that we were facing. Um, so those systems were set up because, you know, it was chaos and people were looking at Hitler and, and Mussolini and saying, well, that, that's our future unless we can figure out, you know, and the Soviet Union, unless we can figure out some way of, of um, of giving people the ability to rule themselves and to have freedom in both an economic and political. As those systems collapse, and they've been collapsing for about 40 years, but they really, the spine of it was the housing finance system, and that snapped in 2008. What you've seen is more and more political instability and a political establishment in both sides that are unwilling to actually deal with re resurrecting some sort of social contract that people uh, that is that is stable. And so when you see someone like Trump come into the picture, you know, he is not it's not that he won because, uh, you know, you can you can pick lots of different 
different reasons for why he won. But the the reason that he was even close, the reason that he, that, that he got to a position where he was able to get into power is because, you know, the systems that we have in place to allow people to organize their own communities have fallen apart. So if we want to criticize Trump, we can, but you have to realize that the, the deep-rooted political power that he's wielding that comes from the collapse of these systems can only be combated by really putting forward an agenda that would resurrect uh, some sort of social contract that is stable, that does allow for people to pursue economic and political liberties. So right. you're against this idea that uh, he, he's the great villain and like a great man of history narrative. Well, I, I you know, look, I, I'm not actually against the great, the great man theory of history or the great person theory of history. So well, Because, you know, politics is opportunistic, right? And when these structures fall apart, it is people that rebuild them in one form or another. So, you know, Germany collapsed, uh, Italy collapsed, the U.S. collapsed, England collapsed, France collapsed. You saw different people, different opportunistic individuals choose different strategies for restoring uh, social equity. Um, all of them collapsed because of the machinations of, of bankers and essentially the, the unwillingness of bankers to look at more than just their own balance sheet. And that was, that was what the interwar years of the 20s was about. And it was very similar to the, uh, the 1990s and, and, uh, and 2000s. And actually, you could go back to the 1980s as well. So what we're dealing with is a, is a really dangerous moment. And, you know, sure, Trump could, could um, break a bunch of political norms and really restructure our political order. And we may not be able to do anything about that, no matter how hard we try. But then again, you know, we might. And, and so how we respond to him is going to have, I think, significant impacts on what he does and what the political order looks like um, after he's gone or as he's setting it up. Right. So what are the things that happened and the takeaways that we need to look at? What led to Trump's rise? That will inform so the way we change, organize. There was a change in the 1970s. I'll go back to the 70s. Okay. Um, and actually, I'll go to the 30s. So what happened in the 30s, to, because the system was, had been collapsed, is that they, their businessmen were running everything, right? And they said, that is a problem. We need to look at these big corporations that are monopolistic. What they do is they gouge us with, out of cash with their monopolies, and then they use that cash to buy our democracy. That is a, and then they use that democracy to generate more ability to gouge us. And they said, we need to break that. And they set up what's called the New Deal to basically decentralize these corporations to fit the corporate form into our constitutional order. And that's what FDR actually said. And that involved a whole set of policies, um, anti-monopoly policies and, and policies to, to force, you know, Glass-Steagall was part of it, but basically to remove the ability of, of financial intermediaries to run our culture. So in the 1970s, the, the new Democrats, um, this just generation that was weaned on campus activism of the 1960s, the, the new left, came into power and they largely rebelled against the New Deal because they, they saw the world differently and they didn't think that banks and big corporations were particularly problematic because they hadn't been for 40 years. And then over the next, from the basically the late 70s until the, uh, the, the financial crisis, their ideology, which was, was neoliberalism, which is a very sort of, um, with certain regulatory mandates and certain forms of identity um, being wedded to a very concentrated corporate structure. So let's reconstruct the trusts of the, of the pre-New you know, New Deal era and let's put some regulatory mandates on top of that. That was their philosophy of how to run the world. That's how Clinton ran the world in the 1990s. It's, it's the way that the Obama administration, who are the intellectual heirs to this tradition, thought about the world. It's why we built the ACA and Dodd-Frank the way that we did, which is very concentrated banks, very concentrated insurance companies and hospitals with regulatory mandates on them. It's why the administration was still pushing the TPP, because they see mm -hmm. concentrated financial structures as the way to deliver social justice. So that that... Uh, what that does is it does exactly what it did in from the 1870s to the 1920s, is it subordinates our political identity to kind of financial intermediaries, and it creates instability in our political system. Uh, it also 
can can have the effect of creating sectarian rivalries, um, which is in America takes the form of racism. Mm -hmm. um, in other countries, takes different forms, but it's usually some sort of tribal identity politics, and uh, and that's what we've seen, and we've seen it for 40 years, um, and uh, and it's gotten worse, and Trump's just the latest manifestation of it. But when you have a commercial system where you know the most the hottest company um, of the of the last 10 years, the name is Uber, which is named after a Nietzschean term that inspired, uh, you know, fascism in Germany. That's a pretty dangerous political situation, and people don't usually look at the commercial sector as the progenitor of political ideas, or at least they don't today. But that is where a lot of our politics comes from. Every one of us is reliant on businesses for all of our our um, political economy for our food, nutrition, so on and so forth, health, transportation. And so we ought to be thinking about those systems as political systems. That's what's happening, and that's what Trump ran on, and Clinton didn't run on that. Um, so that's, that's, that's really what we're dealing with. We're, we're dealing with a very autocratic commercial system that we've allowed to rise since the 1970s, and that has spilled over into the political sector. And if we want to deal with the autocracy that we're seeing all around us, and we have to deal with it in the commercial sector as well as the political sector. So what does that look like policy-wise and organizing-wise? I know you're a policy person. You're not an organizer. But what what are the takeaways in both of those spheres? I don't know. I thought it just sounded good. No, I'm just <laughs> kidding. Um, it does, yeah. I, uh, no, I mean, it, it looks like much more aggressive, you know, anti-monopoly policy, much more aggressive. So so to, to break up institutions across the economy, not just banks, but – um, but you know, companies. You know, you, you've got you've got um, a whole set of institutions that are, that dominate our commercial sector. You know, the glasses have a monopoly. There's basically one company that makes and markets and sells glasses. There's basically one company or a couple of companies that make mattresses. Um, you know, th that the, there's there's like one company that does you know certain or few companies that do IT systems for hospitals. Um, now, not to mention, you know, telecommunications with cable and search and retailing with Amazon and Walmart. I mean, throughout the economy, there are all of these monopolies all over the place, and those need to be dealt with on a on a municipal level, on a state level, at every government agency, as well as the antitrust agencies. And organizers need to start thinking about about going after those institutions and seeing those institutions as political. Uh, so that we can write rules like net neutrality or, or, or rules like that that can um, that can actually make sure that we we have an economy that is that is uh, open for liberty for for everyone. So I don't know. That's a very broad agenda, but that is the agenda that you need. Um, it's it, and you need it in every sector of of our of our political system. Like we have to see. Um, managing the commercial our commercial systems so that they promote competition and liberty as the core of what we do. There are lots of other important areas of how we think about social justice, and we must also incorporate them. But the heart of this country is commerce, mm -hmm. and we cannot ignore commerce. What are some of the most stubborn narratives that you think need to be killed in its sleep? I think the notion that the bailouts were successful is is a problem. I think the Democratic Party needs to uh, needs to recognize that the bailouts, the way that they were conducted, was a betrayal of democracy. And what you see in the, the generally speaking in our political institutions at a high level is a generalized belief that the bailouts worked and that that they saved our economy. And what they did is they saved our our financial institutions in a very concentrated fo form. But they sacrificed our democracy. And that is a narrative that we have not internalized because we have not held anyone accountable for those political decisions. Those were political decisions. So that's a deep narrative that we have to take on. The second narrative I would say we have to take on is the narrative that economists at this stage have expertise. Mm. Economists at this point are not experts. They are political consultants and political advocates who speak in a language of technocracy and do not disclose their clients. Unlike other people, they have this image of objectivity and they present what they're doing as a science. 
and as as outside of ideology, right? Like post ideology. Right. I mean, you've got you've got a, a whole industry of economists who spend their time taking money from corporations yeah. so that they will go to courts and say this merger or that merger will not increase prices. And of course, the mergers do increase prices. You have economists who spend their time making observations, like a report just came out the other day saying, really weird thing. It turns out that imports from China have cost jobs and that has health impact. It's like, oh, thank you for saying that in 2016. Right. Like normal people noticed that everything was made in China like 10 years ago and corporate executives announced that they were going to make everything in China in the late 1990s. So this is embarrassing. And the, the institution of economics, I am a, I like economics. Economists have been essential in thinking about our, our culture. They used to be great in the, in the fifties, but at this point, the institution of economics needs to be like radically restructured. I don't know how to do that, but until that happens, it is important for people to accept common sense over these institutions. I the same thing's probably true of, of lawyers. I think that's another mm. kind of we need to take a very different attitude towards experts mm -hmm. until frankly the experts clean up their own institutions. You know, the the other thing is I think it's really important for activists and organizers and just Democrats to stop saying well, I don't know that much about that mm. policy or that. You know, it's like I'm not an expert in economic. I hear this all the time right. on economic matters. They're just like, well, I don't, you know, people get ashamed and embarrassed. They feel like they don't know. And you got to recognize that, that you do know, right? I've had a lot of conversations with people. People are generally pretty perceptive about political economy. You just have to learn a little bit and get more confident because if you're not confident in what you want and what you think about the world, that vacuum will be filled for you by autocrats. First, you have to free your mind. And the rest will follow. Be colorblind. That, well, Don't be so shallow. Might date I mean, another race rest, or color. Doesn't mean I don't like my strong black brother. You were getting to that, right, Matt? No, I'm. It's all about the end vote. No, so. I mean, if you, if you free your mind, they can still put you in prison. Right, in fact. <laughs> right. <laughs> that not, is what the rest of follows about. Guarantee, but you can't start fighting for your freedom until you are confident enough to want it. Matt, you should. Enough that you can govern. You should be a political analyst, motivational speaker. Seriously. <laughs> That's amazing. I think people would come to you for both. And then you could kind of indoctrinate people as you're just teaching them to, to negotiate better with their bosses or whatever it is that people go to <laughs> motivational speakers for. We should totally make some videos with Matt Stoller. That'll be viral. That'd be amazing. What do you think of? I think yeah, it's motivational speakers. Yeah. Oh, so one last thing. I think oh, yeah. there's and one more narrative that I want to kind no, of this kill. is great. And now that I'm now that we're killing narrative, the tradition I'm talking about of populism is not a left wing tradition, not a radical tradition. It sits squarely in the center of American politics. It is what we fought a revolution for. It is what we fought a civil war for. All right. So what we're talking about is, is American, right? It's, it's, it's centrist American political thought. And it was, we have been robbed of it by these new left and new right radicals from the 60s who now sit in suits, betraying everything America stands for and telling us that we're crazy. So that's the, 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 the other thing is, is we are sitting in the square in the center of American political traditions, and we should claim that. So what does it mean, though? Right, What's the right. difference between being left populist and centrist populist? Well, I don't, I mean, I don't know. I'm, I'm a populist. So the populism to me refers to a very specific historical moment, which is um, farmers in the 18, uh, late 1880s and 1890s who were, you know, farmers or business people. And they were responding to the uh, depredations of the railroads and the uh, the money trust that were charging them high interest rates and monopolizing all of their inputs while manipulating the prices at which they could sell their goods. 
and they were very upset about it, and they wanted um, a, they wanted open markets where they could sell into their goods. They wanted transportation systems that were not dominated by uh, by um, autocratic railroad barons, and they wanted a government that worked for them for their democracy. And ultimately, their agenda was put forward in the 1930s after a lot of them had been wiped out. But I, that's what that's what I think about when I think about populism. It was also a southern and western movement. And it was actually a pretty radically anti-racist movement mm. in the 1890s, although um, it, like they were the only the populists were the only party in the South. They were a third party that was actually um, that was against lynching. Mm. Um, and uh, they had um, they were, you know, they, it was the it was based out of an alliance out of a, a group of farmers called the Farmers Alliance. And they had um, they worked with what was called the Colored Farmers Alliance to try to break the the basically the terrorist state of Southern politics. Uh, they couldn't. They lost, but uh, but they tried. It was a you look. I mean, it, you can always go back, and obviously, like one of the biggest problems they had is that like the there was intense and insane amounts of racism. But there was also like, you know, there was just one of the things that happened is they had multiracial uh, electoral victories. And then white supremacists, who usually represented the economic elite, would just murder everyone. They would just go through it, just murder all the newly elected officials. Like this happened throughout, like throughout towns in the South. I mean, it was like it's insane to think about it. But like that is that is part of our history that we don't talk about. And guess what? Murdering the entire leadership of a political movement does actually make it hard to organize. Right. <laughs> you know. Um, On a metaphysical so like, level. We don't call that fascism, right? Because it, you know, fascism happens in fascism is dated as a 1920s and 1930s movement, but that's what it was, right? I mean, when people say it can't happen here or whatever, like we've had fascism in this country. That is what fascism looks like. Um, so, so you know, anyway, I, that, that's neither here nor there. But I think about myself as a populist because the the. I really look at what those farmers were doing and what they were saying um, and the political movement they inspired and the New Deal, the New Dealers ultimately took from that um, a lot of their policy ideas. And that's the tradition that I feel uh, comfortable with. It's also a tradition that actually goes much further back than just the populist. There were populist type of, of advocates in the 1790s, um, you know, in the 1820s, um, in the pre-Civil War era. So I like that. That's the tradition that I, you know, that I like. Um, much more than the progressives. Um, Were you a big fan of um, the Wizard of Oz as a child? I was, you know, I was, I was not. I, I still have not been able to. I haven't really done any work on that. But um, did somebody said that it was about the gold standard? Yeah, and it is. Someone else was like, no, it wasn't true. No, is it about the gold standard? It is. Yeah, and and that's what the yellow brick road is, and the silver is the Tin Man is about the silver, and it's yeah, it's a big populist themed book, and then. Although the word Oz, in case you're wondering, uh, Frank Baum was telling kids a story. He was a big storyteller, and he was made up the story about the you know, the land of Oz, the magical land of Oz. And he had to come up with a name for this kingdom, Magical Land, and he was sitting across from his filing cabinets, and one of the filing cabinets was O through Z. So it was O hyphen Z, and that's why he called it Oz. Little nugget. That's awesome. That's awesome, right? Um, Thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. And so, t what is the difference then for you between the po when you say populist versus progressive? And then I'll ask you about Paul Krugman and and uh, and why Vox should be um, banned. <laughs> Find out Max's thoughts on Paul Krugman and why he identifies more as a populist than progressive. Subscribe to our Patreon at the five dollar level.